Jason Ball is best known as a pioneering LGBTIQ advocate who, after coming out in 2012, used his voice to launch a campaign to challenge homophobia in sport and drive cultural change within the AFL. However, at age 12, Jason held his own secret and shame so deeply that he thought suicide might be a better option than coming out. You know, I didn't come out to my parents, but I sort of just, they, they figured it out. But I kind of trained them to not ask questions about it. Jason shares his powerful and sometimes agonising story of trying to be someone he wasn't. He reflects on the challenges of growing up gay with no role models, all the while trying to find ways to fit into the often toxic culture of masculinity in men's elite sport. So if you've ever had the thought that being gay was acceptable for others but not for you, or if you've ever believed you've been defined by one part of yourself and yet hanker to let the other parts shine, then join us for this really special conversation as we talk to Jason Ball, who's not only one of the nicest and most compassionate humans we think you will ever meet, but he's also a total inspiration to anyone who's really trying to live authentically against both real and perceived hurdles that at times can feel kind of insurmountable. And I think that's really key in Jason's conversation, that for each and every one of us, sometimes we feel things are so out of control or so beyond our reach, but often that's in our own mind. Totally. And I love, Jason was so beautifully honest in this. There were such special moments that he brought up around growing up and how he came out to his family and the people around him. And also some of, um, I think some of his insights around the masculine culture that we have and how do we start to rethink what that looks like in respect of people who do need to authentically show up. And if you're also the parent of perhaps someone who's hasn't come out or has come out, I think Jason's conversation so... Uh, aptly tapped into that parent-child relationship against the story of, of being gay and coming out, both from a parent and the child's perspective. Totally. He's an amazing human. Let's have a listen. So, Jason, we're going to start with taking you back, back to the beautiful rolling hills of Christmas Hills in the Yarra Valley, just outside Melbourne where you grew up. And I want us to go back to, to that location and let's go inside your house and into your sister's room <laughs> and let's meet 12-year-old Jason and I can see you in there flicking through a Dolly magazine. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> well, I remember telling myself and my sister that the reason I was flicking through it was to get some lols from the Dolly Doctor because it was always, you know... That <laughs> we was, all got lols from oh, Dolly. You know, talking about orgasms. sex and orgasms and Periods. body parts and everything like that. Um, Most but, of us didn't even know we had three holes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know why I was so drawn to it, but um, just the... The pictures of cute guys, it was the Hanson and um, Christopher Egan on Home and Away and uh, it dawned on me that actually I was attracted to these these guys and I was probably gay and it was actually a terrifying realisation. You were 12? Uh, yeah, I was 12 years old. Yeah. Um, and I remember th- making a promise to myself that I would never act on these feelings. Um, uh, everything... At school, uh, you know, the word gay was used to mean bad or weak or stupid or disgusting. And so I just thought that that's what I would be. That's what the world would think about me. And so I 
thought that this is something that I'm going to have to fight. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be thought less of. Um, and so that was the the start of a rough few years. Um, Did for you me. tell anyone you you were going through that, like your sister? Or no, I I kept it to myself for quite a few years, and it was a, a family friend. I, I kind of came to keeping it inside. Like I look back on it now, and that was that was a real kind of. Uh, it was something that was going to eventually blow in one mm. way or another. And I remember getting to almost breaking point where I thought that I can't keep hiding this anymore. I could either tell someone um, or I could kill myself. Um, they were sort of the, the options that I was thinking about. And on the one hand, ending my life thought like it would be better than dealing with the shame and the embarrassment that would come from telling people that I was gay. But luckily, I'm, I made the choice to talk to someone about it. And so I spoke to a family friend who was a girl who didn't go to my high school. So I felt like a safer bet in case she didn't react well. It wouldn't be the end of my schooling life. Um, and her reaction was positive. And that, for me, was the start of my journey to self-acceptance. Once I learned that one person could be okay with it, maybe other people could. And I gradually came out to more friends and eventually my family, eventually my football team. Um, and then the world. And, and, then, and then the world. <laughs> Why do you think, Jason, the, the default is that I won't be accepted? It's such a common story, particularly in LGBTR communities, that if I share... I won't be loved and I'll be rejected. And then often we hear the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. I think it's changing. And I think these days it'd be a lot different to when I was 12, 20 years ago. When I was 12, I didn't have any positive role models. There was no um, Josh Thomas on television or Tom Ballard or Matthew Mitchum or, you know, young gay men who were comfortable with who they were and were accepted mostly by society. I didn't have any of those role models. Um, uh, all I knew of in terms of gay people were Molly Meldrum and it was sort of a bit of a butt of a joke in a lot of ways. Like it's sort of, um, you know, uh, and so almost accentuated versions yeah yeah common. or stereotype versions or you know to yeah to to be gay is to is to be in Mardi Gras covered mm. in body glitter and wearing a g-string you which know is fun. And that, which is which absolutely and all power to but you know when I I was, I was playing football you know I didn't see myself in that world and I uh, didn't have any role models in the world of football. Um, so I didn't have any idea of what my life could be like. All I had was the language that people used and the word gay in a negative sense, but also like quite a lot of homophobic sort of attitudes in society, whether coming from the church or even coming from that sort of toxic masculinity where being gay is disgusting or the butt of every joke. Words like faggot and poofta and homo are sort of used commonplace. Would it and be so, fair to say that that toxicity uh, is at a higher density inside football clubs? One hundred percent. I think any of those hyper masculine environments, maybe it's like the military or sport, um, where that strength and macho and manliness is really important. There's sort of anything that is feminine or gay is seen as a negative. Mm, and yeah, the so, testosterone goes rogue. Yeah, or they need to use that to sort of assert their masculinity by almost saying how much of a joke it would be if I was gay mm. or um, 
in order to assert their masculinity. So I was getting that reinforced all Mm. the time. So I think in the absence of hearing anything positive from my friends and family, I assumed or feared the worst. And so that's why I think all of those things combined, I, even if there was a, you know, 70% 70% chance that I'd be accepted, my mind would latch onto that 30%. Because when you're like, when you're just in, getting into adolescence and a teenager, like the love and acceptance from your family and friends, like it feels like a life or death thing. Mm. And um, you don't know how you could get by without it. And for a lot of young kids who get kicked out of home um, after they do come out, and there are stories like that that exist, you know, that's a very real reality sometimes. Mm. So, did you try and inside football be the bro? Did you try and change your behaviours to fit the pack? I did for a little bit, but it just didn't work because it wasn't me, <laughs> mm. you know? Like I would try making up stories about girls and 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 I just quickly realised that this is, this is not me, I can't do that. So I kind of just went into my shell a bit and I was sort of that quiet guy in the football club. I didn't get involved in conversations. I didn't get involved in the banter. I excluded myself from those conversations so that, I would so that I wouldn't get tripped up, I wouldn't get found out, and I would, you know, second guess everything that I said or did out of fear that they might figure it out. And, you know, even if there was a question, a conversation came up about what music people liked, I would just like try to not answer because I didn't want to chisel. I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to choose something that was too masculine. So then it's like, thou doth protest too much because you're not really, you know, much of a silver chair or whatever, but you don't want to choose something too. Yeah. So it was just too much and I just retreated and it kind of limited the the friendships yeah. and the bonds that I could have developed with my teammates during those years because I was always hiding, you know, such a, a big part of who I was from them. Did you ever go so far as to date women or, or you know, did you explore not because it felt authentic, but in order to keep the roost up. Mm. Uh, look, I I had a few. I had a lot of girlfriends in primary school, and I had no idea what was going on. And I think it's just because I really liked the company of girls. And then you know, by year eight, you know, I had some girlfriends. But I I remember I I didn't want to be with the girls in the same way that my straight males wanted to be with the girls they talked about wanting to have sex with them and I'm like well I don't want to do that and I was like well that just must be because I love them so much you know I don't, I don't know like and they would have fallen then, in love with and you they, and they fell in love with <laughs> me because I was so sensitive <laughs> and so romantic and I wrote poems for them you know I was just like it's really a match made in yeah, heaven yeah. Sexy as, yeah. <laughs> and then and then I you know I eventually realized that the reason I didn't want to have sex with these girls is because I'm I'm I'm, I'm gay and um, and I realized that, you know, the cute boys in my class, like I really liked them and I wanted to be around them. I wanted to talk to them. And Did and you write them poetry? No, you didn't write them poetry. Well, I would, I would write, I would write them poetry, but never give it to them, mm-hmm. you know, like it would, um, and that, that sort of going through adolescence with this constant unrequited, mm-hmm. you know, attractions that mm-hmm. you have where it's not just, oh, you know, they don't like me for me, but they'll never like me. It's impossible because they're straight and I'm gay. And so I I often think about sort of the delayed um, kind of development that a lot of LGBTIQ people have because we don't go through adolescence in the same way that straight people do because we've got this really kind of this period of just a completely different world where we have to hide our sexuality, mm. we can't talk about our sexuality, we can't act on any of these feelings. Like even... Does that distort the manifestation down the line then when you give permission to yourself to be fully in your sexual 
Yeah, I think it. I think it's delayed, and I think there's sort of this repression in there. And so I remember, you know, I didn't come out to my parents, but I sort of just they they figured it out. But I kind of trained them to not ask questions about it, and if they did, I'll just shut them down. And so, like you know, I'd be bringing guys home, but it wasn't clear to them whether a friend or whether my boyfriend or what's really going on. I didn't want to talk about it. And I realized later down the track when I actually did have a conversation with them, like how freeing it was to be able to talk to them about my relationships um, and to not have to hide things from them. So, so tell us about your relationship with your parents in early years and in you giving something of your teenage years. But what about even your young years? What's the culture of your family like? Who was in the family growing up? Yeah, so it was um, my mum, my dad and my little sister and my mum's a, a high school teacher. Um, my dad worked in corporate affairs. Um, so dad worked a lot, was pretty gone early, gone early in the morning, came back sort of, you know, around dinner time and did a bit of travel and stuff like that. Um, it made, you know, it meant that I was with my mum a lot of the time growing up. She did the school drop off, the school pickup, afternoon tea and everything like that. But the time that I did spend with my dad was really special, like, because I didn't get to see him as often, but he would come home from work trips and he'd always bring a present. And um, the weekends were kind of ours because I played football and he was just living through me because I was doing really well at football. I was getting selected in these development squads. I got recruited to the Eastern Rangers. My dad probably went to every single football yeah. game that I ever played at court quarter time and half time he would like come out and like give me tips and give me feedback and stuff on how I was going and he was just so invested in that part of me and I think this is like a big part of the fear of coming out to my dad if he wasn't going to accept me because he was part of that football world I was going to lose this connection before you'd spoken about it what moment did you know dad knows um so there was a moment where I was sitting in the lounge room I was in high school and um, my dad just, it was just me, my dad and my sister. And my dad said to my sister, he's like, oh, you know, are you seeing anyone at the moment? You've got a boyfriend. She was like, oh, no, I'm not. And then he's like, oh, what about you, Jason? Have you got a girlfriend? I was like, no. He's like, boyfriend. And I was like, no. And just left the room. And then that was kind of the moment where I realized that he'd probably cottoned on to something. But I was... You know, I said before, like I trained him to not ask any further mm. questions because I didn't, I didn't respond to that positive. I didn't know how to deal with that. I hadn't prepared for it. I wasn't ready for it. Um, but it was clear that he knew and that, you know, he was okay. And I think maybe even earlier on, he'd, he'd dropped some hints as well. I think there's a, there's a line, we love Seinfeld in our house and there was a line in Seinfeld, a joke or something where it's, they say something about someone who's gay and then they're like, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and then I remember having a conversation with my dad afterwards and I was like, this is, I think, before I even realized that I was gay. And I was like, you know, they say not that there's anything wrong with that. I was like, but, but there is something wrong with that. Like gay people can't have kids. Like, is that natural? And, and my dad was like, no, it's natural. It's normal. It's part of everything. And I guess I thought in my, I disconnected though that he might have that attitude but probably not for his own son, you know, um, because that would just be so difficult and we're a football family and that's macho and that's straight and he won't want that for me. Um, so even though he dropped hints to say he was accepting of gay people, I didn't know that he'd be accepting of me, his son. 
yeah, I think I feared my dad's reaction more than more than my mum's. And it makes perfect sense from what you just said that 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 was how you connected with him. Mm. And every child is so hungry for the praise and acceptance of their parents. Mm. And if you thought there was anything that would threaten that, mm. why would you go there? You wouldn't yeah. need that. Why would it's you a, risk it? It's a lifeline. And and it was the dichotomous thinking that you had around I can speak up. I can talk to someone or I can kill myself. It really overlooks a whole lot of options in, in the greyness that you couldn't mm. see. You, you, you physically couldn't see them as options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I, I learned that my experience is not an isolated one when it comes to a young LGBTIQ people, you know, six times more likely than straight people to contemplate suicide. And um, it's, yeah, I, that reflection, I think, was a big part of the my, my decision to, I guess, become the advocate that I did. Mm. So let's go there because um, one of the things Mads and I have observed in your journey is that, and as you're as you're sharing today, you've come from a very private and secretive space mm. where you couldn't tell anyone anything about who you were for fear of being rejected. Fast forward a few decades, and it's quite the opposite. You've got this very public platform. And a multitude of awards. And Can I? Should I read them out? Yes, go there. You need to. There'll like, be some gaps and just like <laughs> pin them on your chest. So, <laughs> you were voted as a, a Melbourne University Rising Star in 2016, the Young Australian Humanist of the Year in 2016. You were the Men's Style Magazine Top Men of Influence 2017 the out role model for sport in that same year. You were also uh, the Young Australian of the Year for Victoria in 2017. Do you want me to keep going? Because, like, it's I'm long. sure we've They've missed a few. Anyway, and there are multiple <laughs> awards and accolades. You're very decorated. Um, and as Ben said, like, you've really stepped into the spotlight for someone who was hiding uh, in somewhat in the shadows of self. Here you are now out in the spotlight since coming out in 2012. We were having a bit of a chat before we've chatted to you now about um, what's that like and what sort of catalyzed that transition to wanting to hide, to wanting to actually be out there in the middle of the spotlight? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it was a big turnaround. And I mean, I think the thing that made me able to do that um, was knowing how much it would have helped me to have heard someone talk about these issues. Um, that was the thing as I... I knew if I had have known of such thing as a gay footballer, if I had have known that he could be out to his teammates and it wouldn't be a big deal, if I had have heard more people who were gay talk about their sexuality openly, that that just would have saved me. And so that was my motivation to share my story in, in the way that I did. But, you know, in I, I came out to the media in 2012, but it, it wasn't, I didn't go straight into talking about thoughts of suicide or anything like that. Like it took time to be able to even open up more. Like the first thing was coming out and saying, I'm gay and I play football. And then, you know, after I'd told that story a few times and then the reaction that I got from people was so positive and people saying that that really helped me to hear that story, that was really encouraging. And so then I felt comfortable to talk about the fact that I had had thoughts of suicide when I was younger. And that was met with the same reaction of people saying, yes, like this really helped me to hear this story and thank you for speaking about it. These are issues that people don't talk about enough. And so I guess it was it was the response that I had from the community that helped me continue to keep opening up and, and make that part of, you know, what I wanted to give to the world, I suppose. And create a space for that conversation that obviously wasn't happening, particularly in sporting circles. So you were the driving force uh, behind AFL's first Pride game uh, and then you went on to found... 
Pride Match. Can you tell us a bit about that for those listening who don't know much about Pride Match? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're saying like what was the drive behind what you were doing, like a really big factor of it was the support of my teammates from Yarra Glen. Um, They got on board in a really big way, which was huge for me because I'd feared their reaction for so long. So when all of those fears weren't realized, but in fact they were there to stand by my side, Um, you know, they spoke in support of me the day that I came out to the media. They uh, marched in pride march by my side when I was invited to lead that in 2013. And they held the first ever pride cup, um, in 2014, which was the inspiration behind the AFL's pride game in 2016. And so, it was kind of the fact that I was backed up by these big burly straight guys, you know, that, that gave me the confidence to step out there because I knew they had my back and um, I knew that if they could be okay with it, anyone could be okay with it, you know. Um, and so that was the message that I wanted to get out there. And, and a lot of me sharing my story was actually talking about them because I needed – they were really the role models for – young straight men in our community to see that saying no to homophobia doesn't make you less of a man. In fact, it means that you're a good bloke, Mm. you know, it means that you're sticking up for your mates. And these are sort of the ideals that anyone can get behind, especially young men. And so I, when I, when I would go out and share my story, I, half of the time I was talking about my teammates and talking about their reaction to me so that they could be the role models for, you know, I was talking to all boys schools, for example. Mm-hmm. They're the hero of the story. Exactly. They're yeah. the hero of my story. And um, so I was out there sharing that. And then I guess the power in the Pride Cup, Pride Match, Pride Games, Pride activations in sport um, is that it really is about the allies. It's about people who are straight. Um in an environment like sport where it has been one of the least welcoming, um, actually being proactive to say, you know what, we accept everyone for who they are. Everyone is welcome in our sporting team. Everyone is welcome in sport. And it was a, a few years after I came out in 2015 that there was some research that showed that, you know, my experiences in sport weren't isolated, that I think 80% of people had experienced homophobia in sport. The impact that that had was that nine out of 10 young gay men who played sport felt the need to be in the closet. They didn't feel comfortable coming out to their teammates or they stopped playing sport around the age of 15 or 16 and then missed out on all of the positive things that come from playing sport, whether it's physical activity or the social aspects that come from playing in a team sport and so um, all of those things just combined to have worse health outcomes for the LGBTIQ community and so well and for straight guys playing sport as well because I think if I can drill a little bit on what you just said before around this idea sort of the culture that sits inside sport or or footy um, a lot of it's built on archetypes like mateship and you know um, really calcified ideas of this toxic male yeah There's a lot of programs now to shift culture and there's a lot of change management that we see happening. What's your view on how far we've come and how much more we need to do? Yeah, I think I think it's both come a long way and I think we also still have a lot of work to do. And and I think it's it's not just the homophobia within these environments, it's the sexism, it's the racism, which has been all over the news lately. Um, it all needs to be challenged. And I think what I was trying to put out there was not that, 
you know, masculinity is a bad thing, but we need a more inclusive form of masculinity. We need a masculinity that can embrace vulnerability and weakness and can be compassionate and kind. There's a spectrum of masculinity. All the grey. Yeah. 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 And so that was, you know, I was giving a window into that and, and my teammates were sort of leading the way in how they were doing that for me. And that was a big part of the rolling out of um, Pride Cups across the country is that it always went hand in hand with education. So we wanted to make sure that players and coaches, you know, actually knew what the issues were that why we were doing a Pride Cup. Just putting rainbow on things is not going to stop homophobic behavior. Yeah, people actually need to understand why and how they can change their behavior, how they can be better bystanders and call out behavior. And so, and, and, you know, using the power of stories and sharing my stories and lots of other people have come out since I have in community sport. And so using their stories, bringing in the conversation about gay women in sport and transgender people in sport and using those stories to educate people and, and really create that change. Um, but there, there is still uh, a way to go. Are we still, still not a single male um, in the elite level of AFL has ever come out. Um, we still have, um, you know, the homophobic slurs. Moana Hope was on the front page of the Herald Sun the other day talking about how even though she'd felt comfortable to come out, she copped a lot of homophobic abuse and has driven her away from the game um, to looking at things like sexism and racism with Adam Goods. You know, we still have these issues that we need to challenge, um, but I think we have come a long way in that, you know, I know now looking back, you know, I came out in 2012 since then, the amount of, of people who have felt comfortable to come out in community sports and have reached out to me and shared their stories. It's, it's been incredible. We had people who have come out off the back of their club playing in a pride cup um, and people talking about how that, you know, got them back into sport, you know, for the first time in a long time because they actually had sort of, they felt welcome. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's making a difference, but I guess I wish it was happening faster mm. than what it is, but we've still got a lot to learn. I think systems changed starts with stories, actually. It starts with the people demanding something better than what is existing and then it takes a long time for the policy and the process to then shift to change the structures within which we operate. Yeah, look, there, there was a lot of effort to trying to change the culture of AFL before I came out in 2012. But up until that point, it, I guess it was just seen as the LGBTIQ community trying to impose its agenda on the AFL and was it really relevant. But when I came out, it was like a human face and a human story mm. behind the reality of homophobia in sport and what that meant. And so I think like it's through human stories that like people are able to put themselves into someone else's shoes uh, and feel empathy. And that was really, you know, we went from zero to a hundred off the back of me coming out. And I think if that will be the same, if an elite player will come out, that have an even bigger platform that I did. And, um, you know, I know in women's football, the likes of Aaron Phillips and Moana Hope who have felt comfortable to come out, that's, that really changed the game in, in AFLW and, um, it's yeah definitely I think that people respond best to to stories and it's not my story but it was also the story of my teammates you know the the men in the audience were able to see themselves in those guys or I I once gave a presentation at a on a mining site um in the Latrobe Valley and the the 
guys in high vis in the audience, they, they saw themselves in my dad, you know, and, and could relate to that. And, um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them said that. And they, so they put themselves in the shoes of, well, what if my son came out to me? Yeah. How would I react? And, and, and to think of him thinking of ending his own life and how my actions could contribute to stopping that. And, you know, that was really powerful, but it was through, you're not just going to get that through some statistics. Um, it needs to be through stories. And and we would wholeheartedly agree that narrative piece is so powerful. Just to change direction, um, you've also said that um, being gay doesn't define you. It's a part of you. You know, we're talking so much about your gay narrative now, but what are the other parts of you and how, how do you work with honouring those? Yeah, no, really good point. And, and I have... Um you know, I knew some people have asked me, you know, do you feel like you've been put into a box and just defined as the gay footballer? And and I remember, I think when I was on Sunrise, like the day after I came out under the headline, just under said gay footballer, like it didn't have my name. It was just gay footballer. <laughs> and um, and some people were like, oh, you know, how do you feel about that? And I mean, at the start, like I'm kind of like, well, I'm, it's actually good. Like I don't care being labeled something that I am. Um, that's fine. Um, and I knew to see those two words together when I was a kid would have probably helped me. So if people need to know that there is a gay footballer and I get labeled that, that's fine. But I do know that it's not, it doesn't define me. It's not all that I am. And I think for me, after about three or four years of, of becoming this figurehead in tackling homophobia in sport and um, I, I – I actually sought out a, a different opportunity in how to broaden, you know, what I wanted to offer the world in, in running for parliament. And um, I, you know, I'd always had a passion for the environment. I, I care about the, you know, the treatment of asylum seekers. And so putting your hand up and being a candidate in an election is a great way to talk about all of the other things you're also passionate about. And I felt that partly what had helped me when I came out was not just the fact that I had a really unique story that was new that people needed to hear, but I was pretty good at talking about it. And I thought that I could use those skills with communication and social media and lend that to the other pressing issues of our time, like climate change, um, like, you know, talking about creating a more equal society. I would love to know, um, outside of sort of political rhetoric but is losing an election candidacy like you gave up your life your work and everything to go really freaking hard toward trying to get that seat when you weren't successful is there a form of grief that kicks in after that um look I I think I had prepared myself for whatever happened like I was I was you know I'd the, the, I ran in two elections, so I kind of did it one twice. In two. One in twenty sixteen yeah. in the federal election, and again in twenty nineteen, and running for a, you know a lower house seat. Um, and I, I mean, the first thing was I knew that you know this decision to align yourself to one political party um, is also a really big one because you know politics can be very divisive doors could close to you um i didn't want the work that i'd been doing with the afl to be undermined by that to see that i had some sort of political ideological agenda behind that work i was doing or to be associated with politics in any way because it wasn't um and so after that campaign um you know i i was so like humbled to have been a candidate and because it wasn't just my campaign like we had hundreds of volunteers people donated you know th thousands of their own dollars to fund this campaign and I was just the face of it there was actually so much more behind it and whilst we didn't um, win and I didn't become a member of parliament we still achieved a lot and that was what 
the volunteers and the team and I were able to celebrate after the election is that we had done things like push the major parties closer to our policies on climate change and we made... And you saved yourself from the bear pit as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, um, in a sense, like after the first election, I was like, it's, it's a win-win. Either I become a politician or I can be a normal human being, which is also pretty good. <laughs> um, and that the... Uh, you know, and I decided to do it all again um, in, in 2019. And, um, you know, I think I threw more of myself into it the second time around. I, I I had learned a lot the first time around about what was worth my time and what wasn't worth my time. So I was prioritizing better. I felt smarter about how we were campaigning. Um, the polls were saying we were in with a real shot. Um, there was a lot going in our favor. Um, there was also a lot, you know, going against us in terms of the, the deep pockets of the other parties and their vested corporate interests. But I digress. Um, we we that's still a whole that's other a whole other topic. But yeah. we, um, you know, I I had just founded. Pride Cup Australia and had announced my candidacy sort of around the same time. And after a few months, I quickly realized that I couldn't do both of these things at the one time. Like I was so close to burnout and the campaign hadn't even started. And so I knew that something had to give. And I mean, my whole point in creating an organization for Pride Cup was because my goal was to go and be a politician. Um, uh, but I was the one that people kept coming to, to say, how do we run a Pride Cup at our club? How do we do this? We want someone to come and talk. And so I was like, well, how can I, how can I build a, a team and pass on sort of the information, the contacts, the vision uh, to some other people to go and do that work? Because other people can go and do run Pride Cups, but no one else can be the candidate. Um, so I had to make a choice. And so I uh, created Pride Cup Australia, got some people, hired some people, raised some money, um, and they were able to go and do that while I ran for ran for parliament. But running for parliament, you, you don't get paid for that. Um, unlike the, you know, I was getting paid at Pride Cup. And so, you know, I was in a very privileged position that I was able to borrow some money from mum and dad so that I could just purely focus on the election um, full-time and just give it everything I had. And if, if we won, then great, I'd be a politician. I'd have a very good-paying job so I could pay back mum and dad. Or or if I didn't, I'd go and get a job and pay back mum and dad and be a normal <laughs> human being. And um, Now that you're a normal human... You're working at Scope. Tell us about mm. that. Yeah, so I'm, I've, um, I've got, a, got a job working at Scope, the disability service provider. And, you know, I had a few options after the election. Do I go back to Pride Cup and keep doing that? Um, or, you know, do I, do I get involved in the Greens more full on, become a staffer or something like that? And I decided I wanted to look for an opportunity that wasn't all about me. Um, and something where I could be a bit more in the background and take the time to sort of figure out what I want to do next, whether that's run again in the short or long term or at all. Um, whether Third that's time to, lucky. Who knows? Um, fourth, fifth. Yeah, I mean, Richard Dinatali ran about eight times before he got in, I think. Um, but I needed to step back because the startup environment and being the LGBTIQ role model was also all engrossing. And I just had so much of that for the last eight years of my life that I needed to just have a break. Um, just have a regular income, be able to create a bit more of a work-life balance, spend more time with friends, some more time with family, um, you know, and, and really look inward and think about what is it that I want to do next. 
Um, and what's and, your role uh, with Scope? What are you doing? Yeah, sure. So my first role um, there was helping them prepare for the Disability Royal Commission. So my background is in policy and government relations. And so while I'm, I'm not familiar, hadn't been, hadn't worked in the disability sector before, I'd worked in the mental health sector. Um, I was able to bring some of that expertise to the table. And then um, I've since been seconded into a quality and safeguarding role. So helping them to um, prevent, you know, violence, abuse and neglect within the disability sector, which has been, you know, a huge learning curve and really great and for me just just wonderful to be able to have a job that is nine to five and be able to switch off at the end of it and go home and spend time with my boyfriend go have dinner with mum and dad and not have to do events and be on all the time and be posting on social do media and doing and stuff yeah. doing <laughs> podcasts and doing media and doing How talks annoying. and I mean you know I loved doing it um but I I told my story a, a lot of times and there's probably still people out there who haven't heard it but I'd heard it a lot of times and I was ready to start start doing something different and that's what politics was um but you know I, I have no regrets at all in in putting myself forward I'm so proud that I did I'm proud of the campaign that we ran I'm proud of the difference that it made um and I look um now to the future and all, all the things that I've learned and I guess I'm allowing myself to have a bit of a slower existence um and take the time to really figure out what I want to do like all of us still trying to work out what we're doing with the rest of our lives. Mm. I think we've got two more questions. Yeah. One one is have you paid your mum and dad back? Um I've I'm about halfway there. Okay. So and the second question is one that we ask all of our guests on Human Cogs, knowing that being human is messy. So who do you think does human well? I think I would have to say my mum. Um I think she does human really well. She is just like it blows me away when I now as an adult how hard it is to be an adult and she just does it so effortlessly and so um, with so much compassion and care for other people um, that you know she's a real inspiration to me Mm. and she bakes and she bakes she she cooks she's incredible she's my number one human I love it I have got one other question. Are you still writing poetry? <laughs> um, not really, but I can remember the poem that I wrote to get um, Kim Stremple to date me in year eight. Um, it was something like, or just the last verse was, you and me, me and you, that's the way I want it to be. Will you be my girl? Will you go out with me? <laughs> oh, that's nice. My boyfriend in year eight wrote a Valentine's. Yeah. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue. My love for you burns like a sausage on a barbecue. <laughs> Two, there's three questions, actually. So you shake the tin. We've got a couple of coins we can throw in there. Yeah. Two, you said you've told your story a lot of times. Yeah. If your little golden book was sitting on the shelf over there, what would the front cover say? What is your story called? That's a good question. Oh, there'd, be, there'd be some message in there about um, I guess having the, having the courage to be who you are, I think, is the message that I'd want to impart and I think that's the key theme from my story. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us. So what we really hope is that these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe a few others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. 
That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. <laughs>